this morning just let everything grow dim in your light, Lord. May it be said of us at the end of our lives that it was only Jesus for us. We praise you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning again, everyone. Um, as I said, my name is Ginny, and I'm really glad to be here with you this morning. Uh, I love this church. I found a lot of um, solace and peace here in the time when I really needed it in my life for three months last fall. Um, I love John and Jana. I just, uh, I love Daryl. I've known Daryl for so long. I just, I think this is just the greatest, the greatest place. I tell everyone that if I didn't go to Emmanuel, if they didn't pay me, I would go to church here. <laughs> I love it here. Um, I'm particularly excited to be here this morning because we're in the Gospel of Mark, which um, I don't know if you're allowed to say this, but is my favorite gospel. Um, I don't know if y'all have a favorite gospel, but I just, they're all wonderful for their own reasons, but there's just something about the Gospel of Mark that just like makes my soul sing, you know? Um, and this is such an important moment in the Gospel of Mark as well, so I can't, I just feel so lucky to be able to be here with you this morning and preach on this text. So today is the day the church calls Transfiguration Sunday for obvious reasons. That's the text we just read. But it's also the last Sunday before Lent begins. And so the question for us, the church ought to ask this morning is, uh, why this text? Why today? What's the importance of the Transfiguration as the last thing we gather together and think about before Lent begins? In order to see why this text, we have to go back a little ways into the previous chapter. Uh, I also just want to say that I just finished t teaching a class on Mark at my church, a three-week class. So um, my apologies and you're welcome for the amount of contextual reading we're going to do during, <laughs> during this sermon. Uh, so, so bear with me. It's going to be really good. I'm really excited. So what I want to say first is, uh, you know, how did we get here in Mark's gospel? What has happened up to this point? So the Gospel of Mark is sort of shaped like a mountain. I think that's a really helpful way. Anytime you're coming to the, the Gospel of Mark, you can read it in that way. The first part of the Gospel is sort of moving upwards towards this uh, clutch moment that happens in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And then it sort of begins to descend down towards Jer Jerusalem and towards the cross. So things have been building and building and building up to this point. I think you guys have been in the Gospel of Mark, so you know some of those stories. You're building up to this moment. Um, so in chapter 8, we have to go to chapter 8 before we talk about our text first this morning. Uh, things have been building, and, and uh, there's a peak happening in chapter 8. The descent is towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. So what happens? This is our question. What happens in chapter 8 that starts this shift in the gospel? We're going to read it together. It's um, Mark chapter 8, verse 27. It says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. This is the moment that begins the turn in Mark's gospel. Peter makes a personal declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Now, you may not know this about Mark, but up until this point, no human being has stated that Jesus is the Messiah. God speaks it over him in his baptism, and there are several moments with demons where demons declare that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. Um, but there's no human up until this point that says Jesus is the Messiah until Peter says it. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. This declaration is what shifts things towards the cross. Right after this, Jesus, for the first of three times, foretells of his death and resurrection and has a head-to-head, -head, interestingly, with Peter, who just made this declaration. So let's take a look at that. <clears throat> Mark 8, verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Poor Peter. So, so very confused. So we have these two very poignant moments with this same person, with Peter, which is another shift that happens in this part of the gospel. Peter has been playing this sort of background role in the gospel up until this point. In the moment where he declares Jesus as Messiah, he begins to move to the forefront as like one of the main actors in like the play that is Mark's gospel. Peter is now a paradigm for all hearers of the gospel. He's what people like to call the disciple's disciple. The one we look to. The one we want to judge and point fingers at and say, well, I'll never be like Peter. But when we really do self-examination and look into the mirror, we say, oh, I am exactly like Peter. He's the one that actually most resembles me. Today, Transfiguration Sunday, we step into Peter's shoes. That's the invitation in Mark's gospel at this point and also on this day. We step into Peter's shoes with him on this mountain. Today, this last Sunday before Ash Wednesday, we decide if we are going to come down the mountain and journey with Jesus through Lent to Jerusalem into the cross. So the transfiguration story, now that we've done that contextual work, <clears throat> this story is a peculiar one for the New Testament. They go up a mountain and these ancient long-dead men of the faith appear with Jesus, who's shining and white-looking, I guess, um, and glowing, and then God speaks. This does not sound like a New Testament text. What does this sound like? I used to be a youth pastor, so when I ask questions, you have to answer. <laughs> what does it sound like? It sounds like the Old Testament, doesn't it? It's a very strange little episode that's happening in the middle of Jesus's life. And that's because it is, kind of. Uh, it's a new version of a moment that happened in Exodus between Moses and God. It's a sort of fulfillment of this moment that happened between Moses and God. And you guessed it. We're going to read it. We're going to go back to Exodus. <clears throat> Exodus 33. Look at this encounter between God and Moses. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. 
Now if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, God, that I might know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God responds, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses says to him, if your presence will not go, don't carry us up from here, as though God had not already just said, I'll go with you. Moses had some anxiety. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of this earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will, Moses, my sweet, sweet child, I will do the very thing that you have asked. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So Moses said, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, See, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Does anyone remember what happens to Moses after this encounter? He glows. That's right. He comes down the mountain and he's glowing. The audacity and desperateness that we see in Peter in this text on the transfiguration to me is like a mirror. It's, it's the, the exact same kind of uh, desperateness that we see in Moses in this text in Exodus. Moses is begging for God's companionship and asks the presence to remain with him twice, even as we saw. Um, God already says yes, and Moses is like, no, 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 I need you to be like very clear that you are going to go with me or else I'm not going to do this. And God, of course, says yes again. God says yes to Moses. I will go with you. He grants his request. And then in our text, we have Peter, who is also audacious and desperate. And he says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's make homes. Let's build tents so that we never have to leave this place. But unlike Moses, Peter's request is not granted. God does not say yes to Peter. So what's the difference? That's what we ask ourselves this morning. These two texts that mirror one another. Why does God say yes in one and no in another? Because Moses is asking for the presence to go with him. And Peter is asking to stay. To be a follower of God means to go. To not stay still and comfortable and stagnant, but to follow Jesus and be open to his movements and the movements of the Spirit, to follow him wherever he may lead, as hard or as complicated as it may be. And yes, this is true. But you read this text and you're like, of course Peter wants to stay. Number one, it's just cool what's happening in front of him. Like the heroes of the faith have appeared before him and he's like, let's build tents and hang out here. But it's also understandable why he'd want to stay there because of what Jesus just told him right before this. What did Jesus tell him? I'm going to suffer and be rejected and ultimately killed when we go to Jerusalem. So of course Peter wants to stay. 
like a baby in a womb, safe and warm and protected from the outside world. But all of us know that a baby cannot live out its purpose inside a womb forever. It must be birthed into life. Peter's inclination is an invitation for all of us to see this in ourselves, to see the ways that we resist the growing pains of dying to ourselves. And just like Peter, we have every reason to resist. Our culture tells us, even our medical industry tells us, that discomfort is actually a bad sign. Discomfort is something that ought to be treated. This is why cold plunges are so revolutionary. Do you guys know what cold plunges are? Yes? Where people just go into like an ice bath because they want to? why they're so revolutionary in changing people's lives because they are teaching their bodies that they can withstand hard things. It's physically transformative, but it's also mentally and emotionally transformative for these people. Don't get me wrong, I will never, when the shower's cold, I feel like I might die. So I'll never be in a cold, cold plunge, but I really admire it and think that it's amazing and have read the science. It's incredible what it's doing for people. But it's worth asking the question, what, like Peter, am I resisting? What are the growing pains that Jesus is asking me to lean into right now that I am leaning away from? What in my life is God asking me to put down, even if it hurts? Where is God asking me to go when he hasn't given me all the details of how I'll get there or how I'll get through it? In what ways is God asking me to die to myself? And I've been saying, No, no, I'm just going to stay right here. Just stay on this mountain and build my little tent. What does God say on the Mount of Transfiguration? Anyone remember? Huh? This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. There we go. Listen to him, God says. Meaning, listen to what he just said about taking up your cross and following him. Listen means not just to hear, but to obey. Go back down the mountain, Peter, God is saying, into the valley of human weakness and need and pain where Jesus will soon lose his life. It is okay. You can do it. Because what is God's promise to Moses in Exodus? He says, yes, Moses, I will go with you and I will give you rest. So whatever the thing is that you might be resisting, the inclination to stay rather than go, I speak that comfort to you this morning. In all the places where you're building tents and don't want to come down, the promise that we see in Exodus is that God will answer you over and over again the assurance that he will go with you and that he will give you rest. But here's Peter's issue with listening to Jesus. Peter doesn't know if he can trust Jesus. He calls him Messiah in chapter 8, but when Jesus explains to him what that means, tells the first prediction of his own suffering and death, what does Peter do? He pulls him aside and he's like, no, Jesus, that is not correct. He rebukes him, which is the same word that is used in every single uh, exorcism story in Mark when Jesus rebukes demons that's what Peter does to Jesus 
He's like, absolutely not. You are not going to die. Like that is the strength with which he spoke to Jesus in this moment. He does not trust that this is the will of God, that this is the right thing to do. When they go up the mountain and Peter should trust that everything is okay, Peter tries to take things into his own hands. He wants to make these tents and stay safe on the mountain. He's like, now this is what I was talking about when I rebuked you. <laughs> Let's just stay up here together. Peter obviously believed that Jesus was the Messiah. I think he really believed that with all his heart. I don't think he would have admitted it uh, if he didn't. But I don't think he trusted what that meant. It's one thing to believe in something. And it's another thing to trust it and to follow it. The story of Peter in Mark's gospel, I believe, is about trust. One of trying to trust and failing to trust. So it's significant that when God speaks at the transfiguration and says, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. That what happens right after that is suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. Just when Peter needs this reminder in all the glowing hubbub of glory and Elijah and Moses and all of these things, it disappears and the one on whom everything hangs is the only one he sees, only Jesus. So when God says listen to him, he not only means obey him, but trust him. You can trust him, Peter. Do you know what it took for Peter to trust Jesus? Peter followed him all the way to the cross, denied him, cursed him, abandoned him. What did it take for Peter to trust Jesus? Anybody know? It took a resurrection. It took the resurrection. So if you are having trust issues with Jesus, you are in luck, friends. We are about to enter the season where you can follow him just like Peter all the way to the cross to his death. You can see with your own eyes, Jesus, come out the other side where you will see ultimately through the resurrection that he is trustworthy. One of my favorite people in the world, Rowan Williams, an Anglican theologian, says this about Jesus. Jesus then is seen as embodying, making visible the purpose of God and the action of God. He brings to light peace and praise as our destiny, reconciliation with God and each other. He makes these things not just visible, but possible. He is supremely the one who makes God credible, trustworthy. In his second letter to the church at Corinth, St. Paul says that all God's promises find their yes in Jesus. He establishes through the resurrection that God's promise is to be trusted. This word, transfiguration, <clears throat> it literally means transformed after being with. This is what happens to Moses with his glowing face. It's what happens to Jesus as he's transformed. And it's ultimately what happened to Peter. Peter promises Jesus that he will be with him to the end. Even if everyone else leaves you, I won't, Peter says. No matter the cost. And yet he denies him three different times as Jesus is being questioned and beaten. I haven't been with Jesus, he says. I haven't been with him. I don't know the man. If he hadn't called him Messiah, we would never know how much Peter actually 
put into Jesus's life, how much stake he put into it. When Jesus is resurrected and the women go to the tomb and find Jesus missing, an angel is there to deliver the message that he is risen, which I love. It's like Jesus is already so very busy. He sent an angel to just tell them, and now they're going to go on their way and go find Jesus in Galilee. But what does, he, what does the angel tell the women? Jesus is risen. He is not here. Go tell the disciples. Does anyone know the next part? Go tell the disciples and Peter that he will meet them in Galilee. This is Jesus extending a hand of reconciliation out from across time and space through resurrection power. Go tell Peter. All is not lost. I want to read to you from the beginning of Peter's letter, 1 Peter, to um, a church. These letters are written to churches. So Peter, after he is ultimately transfigured by the person of Jesus and by his resurrection and what it meant for him and for the world, he writes a letter to the church. And the church is full of persecuted people, people who are suffering just like he was afraid to do. And then ultimately actually did. He, uh, he died as a martyr. Uh, Peter writes this letter to the church. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed." Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter was transfigured. He was transformed after being with Jesus. Even enough to take up his own cross and ultimately die just like Jesus did. Peter is the disciples' disciple. He's our guy. He shows us ourselves, how we resist, how afraid we are, how we seek comfort and security and how God calls us out of those things into the unknown, but promises to not only be with us, but to give us rest. Our invitation, friends, this Lent, this week, as you prepare for Ash Wednesday, is to say yes to whatever you've been saying no to, to go where you've been trying to stay. And in going, in walking with Jesus all the way to the cross, you will find him trustworthy when you come here on Easter morning and the tomb is empty and he's not here. He's already alive, doing work, spreading the gospel. We will find him trustworthy in that. Amen? Amen. We're now going to take a moment uh, to be silent, and which I love, to let the Holy Spirit have the last word. So if I said anything dumb or wrong, the Holy Spirit can just erase it. And anything good, the Holy Spirit can just seal it in. So we'll take a moment for 
for the spirit to do, do the work, and then um, we'll join back together.